Okay, guys, today we are finishing up our little series on the doctrine of Scripture. It has been a fun slash maybe long slash maybe exhausting, depending on who you are, half semester. And so hopefully it's been a uh, benefit and a blessing to you. Today we're going to be talking about books outside of the Bible. Little Women, uh, Lonesome Dove, Animorphs, whatever it may be. There's a lot of books. We're just going to name books from that are outside the Bible uh, all day. Uh, We're going to be talking about books outside of the Bible, specifically books that are somehow related to the culture or history of the Bible or the early church. That's specifically what we mean by outside of the Bible. So they're religious books that are somehow used in religious studies. Sometimes they help us with the background or history or culture of the Bible. Sometimes they help us with the background or history or culture uh, of the early church. And so that's what we'll be going over today. And then next week, next week, things are going to be really exciting. Why? Because he's risen indeed, number two, because we're going to be starting on how to study the Bible next week. So we wanted to have this semester to really, really ground us in God's Word. So we did the Doctrine of Scripture, and then starting next week, Jeff is going to kick us off uh, to how to study the Bible, and we'll do that through the beginning of the summer. And so I want to mention something real quick before I recap kind of what we've done so far. Our hope and our goal is eventually to be in the Bible a little bit more. So when we start studying the doctrine of God and we study the doctrine of Christ and we study the doctrine of the end times and we study these kind of things, we'll get to look at a lot more Scripture. So what we're doing now, if you might have noticed this, we've been talking a lot about the Bible. Our hope is to eventually be in the Bible more, but the reason that we started here is because we wanted to lay a foundation. We wanted to say, let's spend some time talking about the Bible, what we believe about the Bible, where we got the Bible, why we can trust the Bible, and let's talk about how to study it. Because my whole life I was told by pastors, read the Bible, 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 every Sunday. And I would try to read it, and I would get confused, and I'd get mad, and that would be the end of that. And so no one ever came around me to say, this is how you read the Bible. This is how you correctly interpret it. Why is there one Bible and a thousand interpretations? How can we get a correct interpretation and know that your interpretation is correct? How can you make cases and arguments for why you believe what you believe? So we'll be starting that next week. Should be a lot of fun. But our hope throughout this entire series is simply this, that when you sit down at your breakfast table, or you sit down or lay down on your bed, or you read your Bible, wherever you read your Bible, that you, whatever is in the back of your head, whatever's in the back of your mind that makes you feel like this is just a helpful religious experience, we want that to be gone, and we want you to realize that you are dialoguing with the Almighty of the universe. If God were to sit down with you at your breakfast table and talk to you, and you're to sit down at your breakfast table and read the Bible, those are the exact same thing. That's what we're trying to get you to see. So that, that's been our hope through all of this. Our hope isn't that you have to memorize every little historical fact or I don't really care that you know who Erasmus is or some of these other guys that we've talked about. What I really want is this. When you sit down, if there's any nagging doubts in the back of your mind, that those are gone. And when God promises something, you can rest in it. When he promises that he loves you, it means he loves you. When he promises that there's grace for you, it means there's grace for you. When he says that you're forgiven, you're not like a Christian with an asterisk that's kind of forgiven, but God still remembers that bad part of you in college. You're forgiven, and that's what we want. That's what we want in this study. So we have, just to recap, we have talked about a lot of things. We've talked about the fact that we serve a God who speaks, which is somewhat unique compared to a lot of other religions, that we have a God who's revealed himself in black and white. We've talked about the inerrancy of Scripture, that the Bible contains no errors. Any seeming contradiction are simply that. They're, they're seeming. They're not actual contradictions. We've talked about the sufficiency of Scripture. That was one of the more debated ones. I heard that a lot of people went to lunch after that and really debated, what does the Bible forbid and not forbid? Is the Bible really all we need? Uh, we've talked about a lot of these kind of things, the authority of Scripture, how God inspired Scripture. We talked about Bible translations, where we got the English Bible, and today we're going to be talking about some books outside of the Bible. Now, let me tell you 
why we're doing this. We're not doing it just to learn a bunch of facts, although there's value in that, all right? As much as the Bible will tell you to seek wisdom, it'll tell you to seek knowledge because you can't be wise without correct facts. And so we do want to teach correct facts. But the reason that I wanna talk about these things today is for a few reasons. One, I want you to continue to be encouraged in, as we read God's word that it really is God's word. Number two, you're gonna hear or probably have already heard some of these terms. Maybe you're watching the History Channel, you're watching the Discovery Channel, and they talk about new gospels or lost gospels. Maybe you have a Mormon neighbor who thinks the Book of Mormon is scripture. Maybe you have uh, you know, a coworker that you know, got their faith tripped up when they were in high school because somebody brought up the fact that there are other Old Testament books and things that we don't have in the Bible. And so whatever that reason is, I want you to know about these things. One, so you better trust God's word. Two, so that you're equipped to minister to people. So part of what we're doing today is apologetics. We're learning to defend our faith from those that would like to attack the Bible and say, well, a bunch of guys just put together the books they wanted, okay? Everybody with me so far? Okay, with that long, boring introduction, let's get into what we're talking about today. I spelled pseudepigrapha wrong, by the way, on your sheet. Jeff reminded me of that because Jeff loves spelling, uh, and I don't love spelling. Okay, Pseudepigrapha. Let's talk about some books outside of the Bible. Let's talk about this first group here. Let me give you a definition. What are the pseudepigrapha? They are text written under a false name or a name from someone famous from the past who is not the real author. They're text written under a false name or a name from someone famous from the past who is not the real author. This word pseudepigrapha is made up of two Greek words. Pseudos, which means fake, all right? Pseudos. And graphe, which means writing, all right? So the pseudepigrapha are writings that come under a false name. The writings that come under a false name. Kind of like a pseudonym. So who's a famous author that has a pseudonym that you can think of? Mark Twain. Yes, Samuel Clemens, I believe, is his actual name. Mark Twain. It's a pseudonym, right? So certain people write under these fake names. Now, within Jewish history and around the time of the New Testament, you have people writing books claiming to be from people they're not actually from, all right? You have that going on now, you have that going on then. That's something that people do. And so I'll give you a few examples of these, and then I'll give you some that are kind of interesting and weird. Let me give you just a few. I just want to mention a few names of pseudepigraphal writings uh, from the Old Testament. There are many more than this, just like there are many more than from the time of the New Testament, but I want to just give you a few. Uh, first and second Enoch is what that's supposed to say. It autocorrected to enough, all right? First and second Enoch. Thanks a lot. As apparently Microsoft Word doesn't care anything about the Word of God. Uh, first through third, enough. Uh, first through third, Enoch. Uh, the Sibylline Oracles. Fourth, Ezra. Anybody this morning do a devotional out of fourth, Ezra? I didn't think so. You're missing out. Second through third, Baruch. Jubilees. You didn't know there was a book called Jubilees. The Psalms of Solomon. All right? Not just Song of Solomon. That's different. But the Psalms of Solomon and many others. All right? There's a lot more than this. Uh, and then in the New Testament, you have a lot of gospels, quote-unquote gospels, claimed to be written by people they're not actually written by, but I'll mention a few. The Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Acts of Paul and Thecla. Thecla's like this girl that gets converted to Christianity, and uh, Paul hangs out with her. She's kind of the Robin to Paul's Batman, and it's in a book called The uh, Acts of Paul and Thecla, and there are many others. And so that's one of the kind of things that the... Uh, kind of like the Da Vinci Code and some of these other things that try to say that we don't have the right gospels we'll point to. They'll point to the fact that there are these other gospels. We'll talk about those in a second. So, but just to summarize, there are a lot of writings, both Jewish, and I'm gonna put Christian in quotes because some of these are from heretical groups, but both Christian and Jewish that are not actually written by who they claim to be written by, and those are called the pseudepigrapha. 
Okay? Those are called the pseudepigrapha. So I'll give you a few examples. Let's start with the Old Testament. There is one called the Apocalypse of Adam, and this is just going to blow your mind. Ready? It's not written by Adam. All right? It claims to be. That's why it's pseudepigrapha. It comes from how long, or how, uh, how long ago was it written? It was written around the second century A.D. How do we know that Adam didn't write the Apocalypse of Adam? Because he's older than the second century A.D., all right, after the time of Christ, okay? There's another one uh, that's very interesting. It's kind of this love story. It's called Joseph and Aseneth. Joseph, the, the coat of many colors guy, you guys know what I'm talking about? Got what you intended for evil, God used for good. Uh, he marries a girl, according to... Uh, Genesis 41, 45, named Aseneth. And this whole thing is like a love story of how he's trying to get her to worship the one true God of Israel. He's, it's kind of like a, uh, like a pagan evangelistic love story. It's very fascinating. And it's the story of Joseph and his bride, Aseneth. That's one of them, also not actually written by them. Did anybody here see the Noah movie that came out like a year or two ago? No, a bunch of real Christians didn't see the Noah movie. Okay. Well, in the Noah movie... It's awful, by the way. I really like Russell Crowe, but the movie's really awful. As Noah's building the ark, there are these rock monsters that are helping Noah build the ark. And you say to yourself, I don't remember any rock monsters in Genesis. You would be right. Where do those come from? Well, those come from a pseudepigraphal writing that the director looked at in addition to the Old Testament called First Enoch. In First Enoch, angels go down and somehow do something inappropriate with women. We have that in Genesis 6, by the way. That's what it means when the sons of God go to the daughters of men. And what God does as a punishment for that in First Enoch is he binds them in the earth. He casts them down into rocks, if you will, and binds them to those things. And so what you're getting in the Noah movie is you're getting a combination of a little bit of Old Testament with some of these pseudepigraphal writings, and that's why you get some weird stuff. You're like, I don't remember any of that. That's because it's not in the Bible. He's getting that from First Enoch, right, from First Enoch. Now, you have this also a lot in the New Testament, so I'm going to tell you some funny stories from some of these from the New Testament, okay? Now, every now and again, you'll be watching the Discovery Channel, the History Channel. I like those things. I encourage you to watch those, but what they'll do is they'll say, There are all these other gospels out there written by other apostles, and what the church did is they got together at 325 at the Council of Nicaea, and they determined what books they wanted in the Bible so it would support their religion and so they would have all the power, despite the fact that Christians are getting killed a lot during this time. A few problems with that. That was the big claim in the Da Vinci Code, was that uh, the church had actually chosen the gospels that it wanted. It didn't choose these other ones, and Jesus actually has a wife, and he has a bunch of kids who ends up being these French kings. Weird story. Yes, I know. Okay, so... Few, few facts here. There were no books decided that would be in the Bible at the Council of Nicaea. That's not what the Council of Nicaea was for. Number two, the reason that we have things like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but we don't have Thomas and Philip and Mary Magdalene and these kind of things, is because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John can actually be traced to the first century. Why is it important that the writings that claim to be by or from or within the oral tradition of the apostles go back to the time of the apostles? Can anybody think of a reason why that's super important? Yes, so that they're real, right? Right? So it's important that we can trace Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to the first century, the time that the apostles actually lived, right? When it comes to these quote-unquote other gospels, the reason we don't have them in the Bible is not because we're just picking and choosing what books we want. It's because they're written way too late to actually be written by the, the apostles they claim to be written by. They're pseudopigraphal. They're not actually written by Thomas or actually written by Philip, there's something, whoever the author is is claiming that so that these books have authority, but they're not actually written by them. Does that make sense? 
So it's really important that we have the writings and teachings of the apostles. The Bible teaches that the church is founded on the prophets and the apostles. The reason we don't have Philip and Thomas and these kind of things within our canon of Scripture is not because we're just picking and choosing which apostles we like. It's because they're not actually written by the apostles because they're written too late. I'll give you some examples. The Gospel of Philip is dated to the 4th century. So hundreds of years after Philip has died, okay? It comes from the 4th century. The Gospel of Barnabas. See, you didn't know, God, you didn't know Barnabas had a gospel. You were just there with your Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John being edified this morning. Nobody in here has a pillow crocheted with the Gospel of Barnabas on it, I guarantee you. The Gospel of Barnabas, the earliest copy we have, comes from the 16th century, and it's in Italian and Spanish, okay? Not God's Word, not actually written by Barnabas. Let me give you some quotes from some of these so-called Gospels. Again, if your coworker comes up and says, I don't believe the Bible, there's a lot of books, the church just kind of chose what books it wants in there, you can give them some of these facts, but let me give you some quotes out of the Gospel of Thomas. Let Mary leave us, this is Jesus speaking, let Mary leave us for women are not worthy of life. How about that? Anybody have that on a coffee mug, back of a t-shirt, this kind of hyper-sexist verse from Jesus, women are not uh, worthy of eternal life? Jesus says this, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males, for every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Mm. Does that just speak to your heart? Just let that wash over you? So in addition to not being written by the apostles, these so-called gospels are going to teach things that are heretical. They're going to teach things that go against Scripture, against the word that the church already had within having the Old Testament and the writings of the apostles, okay? In the gospel of Judas, did you know Judas had a gospel? Well, he, and Judas didn't, but somebody claiming to be Judas does, right? So in the gospel of Judas, Jesus tells Judas, you will exceed all of them, for you will sacrifice the man that clothes me. In the gospel of Judas, guess who the hero is? Judas, he's actually the good guy. See, he's just gotten this bad rap. You thought he was the bad guy. You thought he was the betrayer. But no, in the Gospel of Judas, he's actually a good guy, and he and Jesus have collaborated about this plan because the Gospel of Judas is written by a heretical sect in early Christianity called Gnosticism, Gnosticism. The Greek word gnosis is the word for knowledge. It's where you get the term Gnostic. Gnostics believed that the God who created the physical world and the spiritual God were two different gods, and Gnostics believed that everything physical was bad and everything spiritual was good. And so in the Gospel of Judas, because it's written by this heretical cult, Jesus is trying to get rid of this gross humanity. Ugh, this body, get me out of there. The, soul, the body's kind of a prison for the soul. And so he's like, Judas, I need you to help me get out of this gross physical body so I can just be spiritual. And so what you see here is not only is it written way after the time of the apostles, but it's written with a theological intent to try to push the beliefs of a cult, not try to accurately interpret God's word. Not try to accurately interpret God's word, okay? Now I'll give you my favorite one. And you, by the way, you can read these. They're, they're public domain. There's nothing wrong. Again, what's so interesting is you'll start reading these and your faith will actually be encouraged because you see how ridiculous they are. You're like, oh no, what if I read this and my faith is hurt? These are gonna encourage your faith because you're gonna read something crazy and you're like, oh man, we're good. Things are good. The Bible's good. So my favorite Gnostic or pseudopigraphal gospel is called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. The Infancy Gospel of Thomas. That's different than the Gospel of Thomas. The Infancy Gospel of Thomas is written to tell you what Jesus was like as a little boy. Haven't you ever wondered that? You see his miraculous birth. You see him at 12 years old with the scribes in the temple. And then you see him in his ministry in like his 30s. What is four-year-old Jesus like? What is six-year-old Jesus like? When his mom calls him, is he just there? What, is, what, what happens? 
And so the infancy gospel of Thomas is written to try to tell you what little boy Jesus is like, and it makes him like a divine Dennis the Menace, okay? That's really what it makes him. I'll give you a few examples from the infancy gospel of Thomas. One, there's a place in there where Jesus is playing with a puddle of water, just playing with a puddle of water, and a kid comes up with a stick and starts messing with it, starts messing with Jesus, stirring up his little puddle of water. So Jesus curses the kid, and he withers up like a fig tree and dies, okay? Okay, another time, Jesus is walking by, and a kid running down the road, playing as kids do, bumps into Jesus, so Jesus kills him. That's what he does. There's a lot of of Jesus killing people in the infancy gospel of Thomas. And so that kid's parents come to complain to Joseph and Mary. So they knock on the door, and they're like, hey, Jesus is kind of causing a ruckus. He's killing a bunch of kids, and he's doing these kind of things. And that makes Jesus mad, so he curses them with blindness, all right? Curses the parents. Not only does he kill the kid, he's cursed now the parents with blindness. And my favorite one, Jesus has a buddy named Zeno. That's the name of his buddy in this gospel. And his buddy falls down the stairs and dies. Okay? His buddy falls down the stairs. And Joseph and Mary come and they're like, Jesus, what have you done? Did you kill your buddy Zeno? And he's like, no, I didn't kill him. And they're like, yes, you did. I bet you pushed him down the stairs. I bet you killed him. And he goes, no, you ask him. So he raises him from the dead and asked him, hey, did I push you down the stairs? No, you didn't push me down the stairs. All right? Infancy Gospel of Thomas. Dennis the Menace, Boy Jesus. It's one of my favorites. It's super fun to read online. It only takes about 10, 15 minutes to read uh, if you uh, really are just that bored or nerdy. So go for that. Uh, Infancy Gospel of Thomas. So all I'm trying to say with the pseudepigrapha is that these are things that are not actually written by who they claim to be written by. Now, are the writings of the pseudepigrapha scripture? Yes or no? No. However, can they be really helpful for us to understand what Jews a long time ago believed about certain religious ideas and cultural things? Yes, they can be, okay? I've actually color-coded this. The words here in black are ones that are helpful for understanding biblical culture and history. The ones in blue are helpful for understanding early church history. And then the ones in red are just really not helpful at all, okay? Now, they're helpful. Well, I'll I'll tell you about some things they can be helpful for later on, but I've kind of uh, coordinated this. So the pseudepigrapha, not scripture, but it can be helpful for culture. I'll give you an example. A lot of how we know how to read the book of Revelation comes from looking at other apocalyptic literature from Judaism. What do Jews mean when they use angels as symbolic messengers? What do Jews mean? What are they expecting the end of the world to be like? What are they expecting the final battle to be like? And these kind of things. We learn a lot of that stuff from the pseudepigrapha. Now, that's not scripture, but as we read, for example, the book of Revelation, we can start thinking, what did Jews assume by this? And so it can be very helpful historically and culturally. Everybody with me? Okay, number two, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Raise your hand in here if you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, everybody, well done, just about everybody, okay? What, who are the, what are the Dead Sea Scrolls? Who are they written by? The Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls are religious writings found at a place outside of Jerusalem called Qumran by a Jewish sect called the Essenes. Okay, let me tell you what happened. In 1946, there was a Bedouin shepherd boy, and he was shepherding his sheep or goats or whatever shepherd shepherd, and he was walking by this place called Qumran. Qumran is outside of Jerusalem. It's out in the desert. It's very hilly and rocky and hot and sandy and deserty, and he is shepherding these uh, goats or sheep or whatever, and he's doing what all little boys do. He's throwing rocks, and as he's walking by, he throws this rock into this cave because there's all these little holes in the rock, and there's all these little caves and nooks and crannies and these kind of things, and so he's just throwing rocks, and he throws one in a cave, and he hears pot, what sounds like pottery breaking. And what we do is from that, Bedouin shepherd boy, 
we find one of the most substantial archaeological finds of the 20th century. And what we find are all these religious writings from this Jewish sect called the Essenes. There's some debate on this, but most likely the people there are called the Essenes, okay? Who were the Essenes? The Essenes were a group of Jews in the first century who thought that mainstream Judaism had sold out, who thought that mainstream Judaism had become corrupt and evil and not really obeying God's word. And so instead of trying to reform it from the inside, what they did is they left and they formed their own sectarian community out in the wilderness, okay? In a sense, they took their Jewish ball and went home, and they went out into the wilderness and said, we're not going to be like the Sadducees and worship at the temple. That's corrupt. We're not going to be like the Pharisees. Uh, They're corrupt in their interpretation of Scripture. We're not going to be like the Zealots and just try to rebel against Rome. What we're going to do is we're going to go try to live in this super puritanical, pure society out in the wilderness, all right, at this place called Qumran. Now, they wrote a lot about what they thought about Jewish theology, They wrote a lot of critiques against mainstream Judaism and these kind of things. So when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found two things. We found actual copies of Scripture, some of whom that were earlier than the ones we had. So, for example, we found a full-length scroll of Isaiah that was a 1,000 years earlier than the one we had up to that point. That's a major find. Those kind of things are super important, okay? So we found copies of Scripture, which is really helpful because then we can do textual criticism like Jeff talked about. But then we found a bunch of writings by the Essenes on what they think about theology, what they're saying is going on in Judaism and these kind of things, okay? So they have a bunch of documents. They have a document called the War Scroll where they talk about what they think the final battle of Armageddon will be like. They have a document called CD, the Community Rule, where they talk about how they should live within community. A lot of our ideas of Jewish thinking about election and predestination comes from uh, what's called the Damascus document. Uh, and so there's all these different things that we can look at to better understand Judaism, to better understand a little bit of the history of the Bible. So just to summarize, other than the scripture we found are the Dead Sea Scrolls scripture. No. What are they? Someone repeat back to me what I said. Who wants to do that? Be bold. Be bold. Yeah, so old, older manuscripts of the Bible, for sure. What else? Anything else? Helpful writings and interpretations of their form of Judaism. That's correct. That's exactly correct. There are big, four big Jewish groups in the time, around the time of the New Testament. Sadducees, Pharisees, the Zealots, who were like these revolutionaries, you know. Uh, they're, the, they're, they're the kind of guys that would have, you know, swords on the back of their bumper sticker that say, come and take it, or something like this. They were ready to rebel against the government at any time. And then you had uh, the, uh, the Essenes, who were kind of this monastic almost cult-like group in Judaism that lives out in the wilderness, okay? So, pseudepigrapha, scripture or no? No. Helpful for history and culture? Yes. Dead Sea Scrolls, other than the actual parts of scripture that we found, scripture or no? No. Helpful for history and culture? Yes, very helpful for history and culture. Now we're gonna go into one that I've already mentioned before, but I wanna mention it again because this is one you'll run into a lot. And some of the things we say in here that we repeat, that's intentional, because repetition is the mother of all learning. So let's talk just real briefly again, what is the Apocrypha? What is the Apocrypha? The Apocrypha is, and I've got a little definition here in your notes, works included in the Greek version of the Old Testament, what's called the Septuagint, that the Catholic Church accepts the Scripture, though Protestants do not. Works included in the Greek version of the Old Testament that the Catholic Church accepts as Scripture, though Protestants do not. Do not. Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a little pop quiz because a lot of people get the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha confused. So I'm going to name a book 
And you tell me whether or not it comes from the Apocrypha or from the Pseudepigrapha. This is tough. This is like a pop quiz where you've been given no answers. Okay? Ready? First Maccabees. Yes! You guys, you're crushing it. You're crushing it. Okay. We're going to do this, by the way, we're going to compete with the local Catholic church down the, uh, down the road, and we're going to have a, a Apocrypha off, and we'll see. I want us to win. I want us to win. Okay? Ready? Uh, fourth Ezra. Pseudepigrapha. Very good. Bell and the dragon. Apocrypha. Look at you guys. Have y'all been reading your apocryphas? Do that carefully. Uh, okay, so, so the whole point, though, is that people will sometimes confuse one of these for Someone will say something like, oh, yeah, the, the, you know, for, I'll give you a great example. Uh, I've heard somebody say that um, no, none of the pseudepigrapha are mentioned in the New Testament. That's not true. The New Testament actually mentions some references to the pseudepigrapha. So in Jude... Uh, and First Peter, mention, uh, they mention some stuff from First Enoch. That's literature that's familiar to them. They don't mention things, though, from the Apocrypha, for example, in, uh, in the New Testament explicitly. They don't quote it as a source. And so it's important just not to get those confused. So pseudepigrapha, false, false writings. They're written by not the authors that they claim to be written by. Dead Sea Scrolls, helpful Jewish writings from this sect, the Apocrypha. Where does the Apocrypha come from? The Apocrypha, they are books written in between the time of the Old and the New Testament. They're books written in between the time of the Old and the New Testament. Between the time of the Old and the New Testament, there's what? What is that, 400-ish years or so between them? There's still things going on in Judaism. There's still, history has not come to a stop for 400 years. And so what's going on is that as Jews, okay, so let's back up a little bit. One of the greatest generals the world has ever known is a guy not named Alexander the Pretty Good because he conquered the known world in his 20s. His name is Alexander the Great because of that. Anybody else conquer the known world in your 20s? What were you doing in your 20s? Not conquering the known world, all right? Alexander the Great, he's a big man. And so he conquers the known world. Greek influence, Greek religion, Greek language spreads everywhere. And so everybody starts speaking Greek, all right? So Greek becomes the lingua franca, the literally that means French language, but the common language of the people during that time. And so what the Jewish leader said is, you know what? A lot of our people have forgotten how to read Hebrew, and a lot of our people don't speak Aramaic. So what we need is a copy of the Bible in Greek. It's a translation. And so when they translate the Bible into Greek, they say, why don't we also include all these other helpful books about our history and our theology and some of these cool stories of how God has worked? And so they include some other books into the Old Testament that were not originally there in the Hebrew. So just to summarize, when the Bible gets translated into Greek, the Jews decide to include other books that were helpful for Jewish culture, Jewish history, Jewish theology that were never originally part of the Scripture. But that's where those books come from. They're books written in between the time of the Old and the New Testament that Catholics have in their Bible, but Protestants do not. Now, briefly, I've already mentioned this on a lesson we talked about of the canon of Scripture, so I won't spend a ton of time here, but I'm going to quickly run through those reasons why we as Protestants don't believe in that the Apocrypha is God's Word. Because we can't just say, uh, Zach said, you know, if somebody asks you, if you're talking to your Catholic friend, and they're like, why don't you accept these books of the Bible? You can't just say, well, because my church doesn't hold that. You can't just say, my grandmother didn't teach me those. You can't just say, some pastor told me this or something like this. You have to give a good, intelligent reason and defense for why we don't hold those. We're not allowed to just kick things out of the Bible just because we don't like them or they don't agree with our theology. So let me give you reasons why we don't hold the Apocrypha to be God's word. Number one, it was never a part of the original Hebrew Bible. All right, we mentioned that. It comes when there's a Greek translation, but there, it's not originally part of the, the Hebrew Bible. And again, if you want more teaching on this, listen to our lecture online on the canon of Scripture. Number two, it's never said to have divine authority from any biblical author. So what's so interesting is in the New Testament, they will quote 
all over the place from the Bible. They'll quote from Deuteronomy, they'll quote from Isaiah, they'll quote from the Psalms. They will even quote works that are not in the Bible. Paul quotes Epimenides and Aratus, these Greek writers, Greek thinkers, right? Jude will quote First Enoch. There are these other things that are being quoted in the New Testament, but not the Apocrypha, right? Not the Apocrypha. Number three, it wasn't accepted by the Jews as Scripture. So the Jews did not consider it on the same level as the rest of Scripture. Some of them did, but the majority of them did not consider them Scripture. So as Roman Catholics, for example, consider it Scripture, they need to realize Jews around the time of the first century did not consider, at least as a whole, for those books to be on the same level as the other books. Let me give you some quotes. A Jewish historian named Josephus says, From Artaxerxes to our own time, the complete history has been written but has not been deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier records because of the failure of the exact succession of the prophets. In the Babylonian Talmud, it says, After the latter prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi had died, the Holy Spirit departed from Israel. 1 Maccabees 4, 45 through 46. So they tore down the altar and put the stones in a suitable place on the temple hill where they were to be kept until a prophet should appear and decide what to do with them. Meaning... The Jews around that time are saying God is not speaking during these 400 years. During, in between the time of the Old and the New Testament, God is not speaking. That's what Jews are saying around this time. That's actually why it's unique when John the Baptist comes onto the scene because now you have a prophetic voice in Israel again. Okay, Now you have a prophetic voice in Israel again. Number four, <clears throat> the Apocrypha has historical, geographical, and theological errors. That's one of the things you can't have if you want to be a candidate for a book in the Bible. You cannot have historical, geographical, and theological errors. Judith, the book of Judith. You didn't know there was a book of Judith. Very feisty story about this lady who seduces this pagan king and then kills him, all right? Judith says that Nebuchadnezzar was the king over Assyria when, it was actually the, uh, when he was actually the king over Babylon. That'd be a historical error. The book of Tobit teaches justification by works, especially paying alms. By the way, fun fact, in the book of Tobit, we actually have another angel name. There are two angels given in, by name in Scripture. Who are they? That's good. Gabriel and Michael, or all together, it kind of sounded like Gabriel or something, all right? <laughs> Gabriel and Michael. We actually get another name of an angel in Tobit, Raphael. Not the Ninja Turtle, Raphael, the angel who's given in Tobit. That's where that name comes from. So like the painter, Raphael, where do they get that? He's Catholic. They get it from the Apocrypha. Wisdom of Solomon has God creating the universe from pre-existing matter. That's not biblical. Listen to this quote. Now, this is not me. Again, don't get mad at Zach. This is something I'm saying I disagree with, and it's something from the Apocrypha. This is Sirach 42.14. It says this, A man's wickedness is better than a woman's goodness. Women bring shame and disgrace. Ouch, right? Uh, that's tough. So you'll see uh, unbiblical ideas, not theologically correct ideas, not historically correct ideas, uh, both these and some of those Gnostic Gospels have some negative things to say about women and uh, not God's word, all right, not God's word. Number five, they don't claim to be scripture themselves. In fact, at least twice, books in the Apocrypha talk about how God has ceased to give revelation in their time. Number six, Jerome. Who remembers who Jerome is? We're doing a little pop quiz. Go for it, Carrington. Jerome is the person who translated the Bible from Greek into Yes, well done, gold star. Jerome is the guy that in 404 translated the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into Latin. So the official Bible of the Roman Catholic Church is called the Vulgate. And guess what Jerome says in the preface to the Vulgate? I've included the Apocrypha because it's helpful, but it's not Scripture. <laughs> All right? So the guy that wrote the Catholic Bible, if you will, says it's not Scripture. And then number seven, when was the Apocrypha actually counted to be Scripture by the Roman Catholic Church? It wasn't until 1546 at the Council of Trent to fight against Martin Luther that it was included in Scripture. Okay. Oh, man, 20-ish, 20-ish. Uh, I, I can't name them all. There's a lot. 
uh, it's about uh, maybe 15, 15 to 20-ish is about right. What's interesting is with the Greek Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church, they even have different amounts. The Greek Orthodox Church has, for example, 3rd and 4th Maccabees that the Catholic Church would not include to be Scripture. So they've got a bunch of weird names. Bell and the Dragon, uh, Judith, uh, Psalm 151. See, you thought there was only 150. Psalm 151, uh, Tobit. Uh, I'm just trying to think. There's, there's a lot of them. Sirach, uh, Wisdom, the Wisdom of Solomon. Uh, there's a bunch. So there's about, I keep going down, maybe 10. <laughs> there's about 15 depending on whose canon you're using. So uh, I mentioned them all actually in that uh, canon of scripture lecture if you want to hear the names. You can just Google it though. It'll give you the names of them. Okay. So Pseudepigrapha, is that scripture? Helpful historically for uh, knowing about the culture of the Bible? Sure, sure, whatever. Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, scripture? Other than the parts that were actually scripture? No. Helpful for knowing uh, Jewish history and theology? Sure. Apocrypha, scripture? Helpful for understanding Jewish thought. Yes, you have to understand that as... So how do I know what Paul means when he says something? There's a lot of ways. We're going to teach you that when we talk about hermeneutics, how to study the Bible. But one of the things I do is I have to look at what other Jews believed around his time to see how they used a certain word so that I can understand how he used that word. Does that make sense? So, for example, even from the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's an interesting article online that talks about how... There's a document called 4QMMT, and it talks about how the Essenes thought of justification... And it tries to argue for a link of how Paul thinks of justification, okay? So these things, again, can be very helpful in understanding the Bible. Not necessary. We taught on the sufficiency and clarity of Scripture, that if you have the Holy Spirit and you have a community of believers, you can get the correct meaning of Scripture, okay? All right, now let's switch gears a little bit, and let's talk some about the church fathers, post-New Testament books, and then later writings. So these ones here in black are, none of these are Scripture. The ones here in black are helpful for biblical history and culture, The ones in blue are helpful for early church history, early church history and early church culture. Let's mention a few. Who are the church fathers? Church fathers are religious writings from early leaders in the Christian church. Church fathers are religious writings from the early leaders in the Christian church, some of whom were even discipled by the apostles. Some of them are very early on. We're talking about, you know, in the very late first century, very early second century for some of them. So some of them might even knew or had had acquaintances with the apostles. And so these are the second generation right after the time of the New Testament. So these are the guys right after that time up through about the fifth century, okay? These are called the church fathers. And so these guys really carry the burden and the mantle of continuing Christianity on from what they had learned. All right, we talked a little bit about this in the early and medieval church lecture. And so uh, I'm going to give you some names of these guys. You don't have to remember them. This is not a full list, but just maybe names you've heard of with the early church leaders. Ignatius, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, Origen, Clement, etc. There's a lot of them. But essentially, this is who these guys are. They're the guys that come after the writings of the New Testament. So the New Testament's been written. Now you have to live it out. You have the beginnings of church history, if you want to think of it that way. And these are major leaders in the early church. All right, major leaders in the early church. So these are now the guys that are going to shape thought and politics and the life of the church and these kind of things. So their writings are not scripture, but they're really, really helpful for seeing what the earliest Christians believed. I really like church history because it's a reminder of all of our presuppositions and blind spots as 21st century American Christians. When you look back and you see what Christians who had the spirit, who lived in community 2,000 years ago believed, it can be a helpful corrective for some of the things we believe because truth is not new, it's old. It's as old as God. Everybody with me? We're not, the, 
being a Christian and doing theology is not like doing technology or science. In technology and science, we're looking forward, and the truth is out somewhere in the future, and we're trying to get it. In Christianity, we're looking backwards, and the truth is in the past. It's as old as God, all right? So we're going back. So that's why church history is helpful to correct some of the things that we believe. So church fathers, not Scripture, but really helpful, helpful for understanding what the early church thought and believed. Doesn't mean it's perfect. Doesn't mean it's right. It's just helpful historically. It helps us at least ask the question of how should we do it this way? During the Reformation, when the Protestants are fighting against the Catholics, they're not just quoting Scripture to each other. Almost just as much as they quote scripture, they quote church fathers. They're trying to say we're standing within the line of history. Jesus promises that the gates of Hades will never overcome his church. And so if that's the case, you better be able to find guys in church history that actually held your position. Okay? One of the uh, best things I've ever heard a professor say to a student was, nobody holds what you just said. Go read some books. Nobody in all of history holds that. (laughs) And the student just like breaks down in tears or something. But the point he's trying to make in a mean way is... Why do you think out of all the Christians that have ever lived out of 2,000 years, you're the first one to come up with this that's right? That's the whole point, that God is preserving his church. So you need to be able to find guys in church history that agree with the positions you hold. Okay, next. Everybody good so far? Everybody take a big breath. Oh, a lot of facts. I do a lot of these deep breathing. Okay, now, pseudepigrapha, fake writings, helpful, Dead Sea Scrolls, cult sect out in the wilderness, Jews that write some things, not scripture, other than scripture, uh, but helpful, apocrypha, what's written in between the Old and New Testaments, not scripture, but helpful, church fathers, early church leaders in the Christian church, super helpful for understanding what Christians believed. Now let's talk about post-New Testament books, post-New Testament books. Let me give you the definition. Religious writings that influenced the early Christian church that are not included in the New Testament canon. Religious writings that influence the early Christian church that are not included in the New Testament canon. There are religious writings that had a big influence on the church that are not Scripture. Can you think of any religious writings that maybe have an effect on Christians today that are not Scripture? Who? Sure, yeah, all these things that you mentioned. I mean, go look at a Christian's... You know, best-selling books, I think the top few are actually now like literally adult coloring books, and so Christian education has really gone down. But look at what those are. I mean, you get a bunch of crazy things. You get a bunch of weird authors with weird books. I'm not going to name some because I don't want to hate on anybody today. Uh, But uh, yeah, there are religious writings outside of the Bible that really influence church culture and really influence what Christians think, and it's the same way in the first century. Same way in the first century. There are other writings that are not Scripture that really influence what Christians think. So I'll give you just two. We don't have time to do much more than that, but I'll give you two. One is called the Didache. Didache. Let me write that on. Uh, I don't want to erase. I'll just write it in a different color. The Didache. That's not didache, all right? It's Didache. It means teaching. You hear the word didactic kind of in uh, in that thing, teaching. This is a document that actually probably goes back to the first century the very back end of the first century. So it's written almost at the time of the apostles, maybe the time of the apostles. It's a helpful religious writing. And what it is, is it's a book that churches used on how to operate in day-to-day church life, okay? All right, it's, it's this helpful book on what churches used on how to operate in day-to-day church life. Let me give you some things that the Didache says, okay? It says some things that are really weird. Number one, you shouldn't really own anything. Shouldn't really own anything. Is that weird? You bet. All right. Now, where are they getting that from? They're getting it from Acts, where the apostles and everybody's living together and they're sharing all these things. But the Didache kind of 
uh, talks down to owning anything, uh, so it's kind of weird in that. In chapter 2, it explicitly calls abortion sin, which is interesting. So not only is this something that the Bible would teach, but even in early church history, in chapter 2, it says you shall not murder a child by abortion. So being pro-life is something that Christians have always been. Now, let me say this. If you're someone in here who has had an abortion or has encouraged an abortion, let me, step, let me put on my pastor hat and step to the side. There's mercy and grace for you in Christ. Statistically, in a church our size, there are multiple women and men who have either had or encouraged abortion within evangelical churches. That's just the case. So I want to say if that's you, there's mercy and love and grace in Christ. The reason I'm mentioning this is to learn a little bit about history. We do want to call sin, sin, but we also want to call what Christ did atonement, and that atonement is for us. So I just want to mention that as an encouragement to you. But it does call abortion uh, sin in chapter 2 of the Didache. In chapter 6, listen to this strange command. You'll love this. For if you are able to bear the entire yoke of the Lord, you will be perfect. But if you are not able to do so, do what you are able. Meaning, try to follow all of Jesus' commands, but if you can't, just do the best you can. Just do the best you can. All right? The Didache. What do you do for baptism, according to the Didache? What do you do for baptism? Well, number one, you should baptize in living water. That's running water. All right, so the Didache is clear. You gotta, you gotta, the, the water's got to be living, right? We're talking about baptism. We're talking about cleansing. you got to do it in a river or somewhere where there's living water. But if there's no living water around, you can do it in still water, all right, like a tub. I don't mean in still water, Texas. You can do it in like a tub, all right, something like this. Now, if there's not a lot of water available, then you can baptize by pouring. So it's kind of like best option is running water. Second best option is still water. Third best option is you take a jug, the Father, and the Son, and Holy Spirit, and you pour Ideally, if you can do baptism in cold water, that's better. Cold water's pure, it's clean, it shocks you, shocks you into new birth or something. Whereas, but if cold water's not available, you live out in the Middle East like they do, then uh, you can use hot water, okay? Then you can use warm water. The Didache says that you have to pray three times a day, all right? Kind of like uh, how Muslims would pray five times a day. We're to pray three times a day. Now listen to this interesting command. If a prophet comes to you and stays three days, asks for money, or ask for a meal, then he's a false prophet, all right? If he is a prophet for P-R-O-F-I-T, all right? If he is a prophet for profit, then you have to kick him out. So if he tries to stay more than three days, ask for money, or want some food, he's automatically a false prophet no matter what he's saying, okay? That's the Didache. But if he's a true prophet and he doesn't ask for those things, you're not allowed to discern it. You gotta do whatever he says. That's the Didache. Influences a lot of churches early on. Is that scripture? It is not. Aren't we glad? <laughs> All right? Aren't we glad? I was baptized in a uh, pool, and the water wasn't running. But guess what? That's okay. That's okay. Sorry, did okay. Now, there's another one. The shepherd of Hermas. The shepherd of Hermas is actually debated by early churches of whether or not it should be scripture. It plays that big of an influence on the early church. Uh, it is not actually written by an apostle or anything like that, so eventually it's excluded from the canon. But I just want to give you a little bit about it, just in case you're ever reading in a commentary or something, and it says shepherd of Hermas. First of all, it is super long. So if you take the book of Romans and copy and paste it into a Word document, do you know how long it is? It's about 18 pages. And the time it takes you to read 18 pages, you can read the entire book of Romans. Doesn't that shame us? <laughs> yes. If you copy the Shepherd of Hermas and put it into a Word document, it's 55 pages. 
All right, so it is really, really super long. It's in three parts. The reason it's called the shepherd is because the main character that it goes to, an angel goes to that character in the form of a shepherd. That's why it's called the shepherd of Hermas. It's in three parts. He's given five visions, 10 commandments, and 12 parables. And some in the early church thought that it should be included in the uh, New Testament. Uh, It is an apocalypse from the second century. An apocalypse from the second century. Apocalypse is a genre of literature. We're gonna talk about this when we talk about... uh, uh, how to study the Bible. Who knows what a genre is? Gabe. Yes, very good. Yeah, medieval sci-fi fantasy. They're, they're types of literature. Uh, there are certain categories of literature that are meant to be read different ways. You don't read poetry like you read a narrative. At least I hope you don't. The joke I've often made here is if I tell my wife I love you so much my heart hurts I might die. It's different than if I write my doctor a note and say I love you so much my heart hurts I might die. Same words. The genre gives the opposite meanings, all right? Genre is really super important. And we'll talk about this when we talk about how to study the Bible. We have a tendency a lot of times to misinterpret parts of the Bible because we don't get the correct genre. You should not read Matthew like you read Revelation. You should not read the Psalms like you read Genesis. These are different types of genres. We'll talk about those. Uh, But it's a a genre of apocalyptic, kind of like the book of Revelation, kind of like the book of Daniel. Those are apocalyptic books. They talk about what happens at the end and how God will ultimately be victorious and uh, how God will ultimately put the world back to rights. Uh, A bunch of weird things in the Shepherd of Hermas. He sees a woman bathing and helps her out of the river. He then has a vision where the woman comes back and accuses him of lust. He later is accused of not being a good parent. He sees a tower that represents the church, and there's some stones that are gross and some stones that don't fit because there's corruption in the church and all these other crazy things. But you don't have to know all that. You just need to know the Shepherd of Hermas is uh, a post-New Testament book that had a lot of influence on the church that's not Scripture. So, you ready for a recap before we get into our last section? Pseudepigrapha. Who can tell me what it is? Oh, man, I failed you. I, f- I failed you all. Not Yes, not written by the time or author that it's supposed to be written in, typically. Sometimes it includes some other books, but we've got to have categories somewhere. Is this scripture? Is it helpful historically? Okay. Dead Sea Scrolls, what are they? Yeah, the Essenes, the Qumran. So they're this group of Jews out in the wilderness who write a bunch of religious writings. Uh, other than the actual scripture that we found there, are the rest of their writings scripture? No. Are they helpful historically? The Apocrypha, what is that? Yes, exactly right. Writings between the Old and the New Testament. Uh, Are they scripture? No. Are they helpful, though, for history and these kind of things? Yes. Church fathers. Who are the church fathers? Old people, right? (laughs) Elderly elders, right, if you want to say it that way. Uh, Yeah, church fathers, early church leaders that write influential works uh, in the church uh, are the writings of the church fathers scripture. Are they helpful for the history of early Christianity? Yes. Post-New Testament books. Yo, give me a general uh, like, uh, description of what they are, though. Exactly right. Er, they're writings after the time of the New Testament that influence the early church, even though they're not Scripture. Okay? Again, are they Scripture? No. Are they helpful for understanding the culture and history of the early church? Yes, they are. So now we'll get into these other ones I'm just going to call later writings. Whereas the rest of these are not Scripture but are helpful, I'll say these later writings, not only are they not Scripture, they're not even helpful. Now, there's a way that they could be helpful. So if you're an Islamic scholar and, you know, the Quran is super helpful for understanding the history of Islam, but when I say helpful here, I mean for understanding the Bible or understanding early Christianity. They're helpful for other things. If you want to study the history of a cult, they're super helpful. 
But when we're talking about the history of the Bible or early church history, then they're not. But I just want to mention a few of these. The first is the Quran. Oh, let me give you a definition. The later writings. They're writings by cults and other religions that are written much later than the beginnings of the Christian church. Okay? Writings by cults and other religions that are written much later than the beginning of the Christian church. This includes a bunch of things. So I'll run through these, and then I'll have Jeff come up. This includes the Quran. Who knows when the Quran was written? Or did I already put it in the notes? Dang it. Oh, okay, sorry. You got to just steal my own thunder. 600s, all right? Quite a bit after the time of the New Testament. The Quran, uh, also unlike the New Testament, which is historically verifiable, and you have witnesses and groups of people doing it, you have one guy where an angel brings revelation. Always watch out for that. The book of Galatians warns you about that. You have the Book of Mormon, all right? Mormons in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are the same group, and uh, they have the Book of Mormon. That comes from the later 1800s from a guy who is not Jewish from New York who was illiterate named Joseph Smith, all right? In the 1800s, by the way, the 1800s was just a really bad hundred years for cults. A lot of cults and stuff popped up then, okay? You have another one called Science and Health. If you ever heard of the Christian Science Movement, that also comes from the 1800s. Uh, it was started by a lady named Mary Baker Eddy. Their primary book was called Science and Health, and the movement is called Christian Science. Now, this doesn't mean there's someone who is a Christian who, who pursues science. It is a cult, all right? It is a cult. Uh, one of their big teachings are simply that you basically can think things into reality. So if you would just believe that you're not sick, you would not be sick. You actually see some of these things creep over into the prosperity gospel. The most ironic thing about the Christian science movement is Mary Baker Eddy, the lady that's kind of the founder, died, right? Just think you're not dead before you die. Just think you're well, and then that won't happen. But you get another cult with the Christian science movement in the 1800s. This includes uh, the Jehovah's Witness uh, group and their version of the Bible. It's called the New World Translation. We talked about how basically every English translation is pretty good except this one because it intentionally uses their bad theology to take things out of Scripture. Uh, but the Jehovah's Witnesses' big organization is actually out in Brooklyn, New York, and it's called the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, okay? This includes a book by a guy named L. Ron Hubbard, who is a fiction writer, and uh, the big book in Scientology, you guys, Scientology is something that's newer, that's creeping up. You even see, like, ads for it now. And they're real obscure. It's like a sunrise, and then the moon, and then it zooms into somebody's eye, and it's like Scientology. And you're like, what was that about? What are they selling? What is this product? And so you now have Scientology. Their big book is called Dianetics. Dianetics is the book written by L. Ron Hubbard, or as I like to call it, the Tom Cruise Bible. All right? Now, are these Scripture? Are these helpful even for understanding early Christianity or the Bible? No. They're only helpful if you're doing some sort of research on a cult or on another religion or things like that. So, now there are a lot of other books that are not in the Bible. Basically, all the books that have ever been written that are not in the Bible. But today, we're just going to summarize kind of with these six. So, Jeffrey, if you want to come on up here and uh, grab the mic, we'll have some time for questions uh, about these different things. Again, the hope of this is not just to give you facts, although facts are good and righteous, To know truth is always better than to not know truth. We want you to be better equipped to engage your neighbor, engage the lost, to be encouraged in your own faith. When you're watching the History Channel and it's like, they didn't include the Gospel of Thomas because Christians are mean. You say, one, the Gospel of Thomas is mean. Two, it wasn't written by Thomas, okay? So we want to equip you to do those things.